Christ Community Church is called by the God of all grace for the transforming of life in Middle Tennessee, spiritually, socially, and culturally. Through the power of the gospel, from Franklin to the nations of the world, all for the glory of God. For more information, visit ChristCommunity.org. Here in the first month of this year, we are doing a series called First Things. So whether you're joining us online and welcome to everyone who's in person, I want to invite you to read along with me from 1 Timothy chapter 2. We've been noting how we're to seek first the kingdom and we're to return to our first love and inquire first of the word of the Lord. And we come to another first today, one which is really perhaps somewhat surprising. So 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 8, and please follow along. Here's Paul writing to Timothy who's in Ephesus, a city that's very wealthy, very powerful, the home of the great temple of Diana, one of the great ancient worship centers of the ancient world, deeply pagan city. First of all then, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This is the word of the Lord. Well, would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this apostolic exhortation to come back to first things and first of all, to pray. Help us, Lord, as we consider this word, inscribe it in our hearts and minds in such a way that we find our priorities rearranged to be your priorities, your first things to be our first things, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Super Bowl is in a couple of weeks. Um, today, teams will be playing for a right to be in the Super Bowl. Uh, the evil, horrible, terrible Tampa Bay Bucks will take on the godly, saintly Green Bay Packers in the first game. I'm just saying, I mean, you need discernment, but there you go. Um, later, Bill's Chiefs couple of weeks, but like all major events, concerts, and so on, there's going to be hardly 
anybody in the stadium in Tampa when that game is played a couple of weeks from now. But some special seats are being reserved for a few thousand people from that area who are people we are honoring this year as perhaps we've never done before, and rightly so, first responders. And so nurses and doctors and EMTs, those who are on the front lines, what we call first responders, will be seated there in seats of honor to be part of that great event. You and I, as Christian people, responders. How do we respond first to the need that we see around us? Perhaps one of the most criticized phrases in contemporary culture is thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. And of course, people are very quick to dismiss that phrase and say, well, that's really not good for much. After all, what does prayer really do? Can prayer really accomplish anything? I've met Christians who've said to me, why should I even pray if God is going to see to whatever it is he's ordained to come to pass? But when we ask a question like that, why pray, why engage at all? We fail to realize that God has ordained not only certain ends, but also certain means towards those ends. And that's why prayer and scripture, that's why worship, That's why evangelism and discipleship, all of these things that we do are part of the way that God accomplishes his purpose in the world. And this one would have hit these early believers, these first responder believers, in a remarkable way. I urge you, first of all, he says, to pray for all people and for all those who are in high positions for kings and rulers, for people that are governing authorities. And of course, we need to remember that when Paul wrote these words, there were no Christian leaders. There were no Christian kings. There were no Christian emperors. In fact, when Paul writes these words to Timothy, who he's left in charge of the church at Ephesus, the emperor on the throne in Rome is Nero. Nero, a particularly arrogant, cruel, and vile emperor, regarded as such by Roman historians themselves, who looked upon him as one of the most terrible of emperors they'd ever had. And Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, we're going to pray for all people, and we're going to pray and this would include Nero too, all those who are on thrones. Nero, who would later have Paul himself beheaded when Paul came to Rome later in his life. So sometimes it's vital for us as Christians to take a step back and to realize that God is at work in our world even in terrible circumstances where really often quite horrifying leaders are on the stage of history. And when that occurs, our response is something which needs to be first prayerful rather than political. First prayerful. I didn't say you shouldn't be involved in politics at all, but rather 
the first thing should be prayer, and then comes the other. If we get that order inverted, we'll not be having the first of all that Paul is writing to Timothy in our hearts and in the life of our church and in the lives of our families. This is our first responsibility. Ray Ortland said this week, it is more important for the church to have the real Jesus than the right politics. We would be of all people most to be pitied. We are a people that have been given this immense privilege of prayer because God uses prayer to align our hearts with his purpose, prepare us for his service, and then to take those prayers and with it change the world. And so let me talk to you this morning in just these next few minutes about the priority of prayer for people in authority, about the purpose of prayer for people in authority, and then the posture of prayer for people in authority. First of all, let's just talk about the priority. Paul says here, first of all, I want prayer to be made for all people. And then with all people in view, he then begins to talk about those who are in high positions. I don't want us to lose sight of the all people in connection with the high positions. In other words, there is a relationship between what's going on in government and what God is doing among all the peoples of the world. First of all, it's important to realize that many of the first Christians struggled with the idea that God was bringing the good news of Jesus to all people everywhere. Many of the first Christians, and certainly all of the first Christians in the first 15 years or so of the church's history were Jewish. And they believed that God had sent the Messiah to Israel to take away their sins. But the idea that Christ had come to save the whole world, these crazy, wild Gentiles as well, well, that was, for many of them, a a big bridge to get over. It was hard for them to realize that God had come to save even these people that they looked down on. Do you know this morning that Jesus loves people you don't? And aren't you glad that he is the Lord instead of someone who doesn't want people in? Jesus has come to make heaven standing room only. And so every nation on the face of the earth, all peoples under the sun, are the objects of his mercy and his grace and his love. And so that all people then is tied immediately to what's going on with rulers and kings. It's not unusual, in fact, that God's people have prayed for those who were pagans and were in positions of authority. It's actually requested in history by those pagan kings. When Ezra and Nehemiah were doing their work back in Jerusalem and they were sent by Cyrus, the the king of Persia, in his decree about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, he put these words in the decree, pray for the life of the king and his sons. Or how about this from Jeremiah chapter 29? where the Lord speaks to his people who are in exile in Babylon. Now, just think about that. They've just seen Jerusalem destroyed, the temple burned to the ground by Babylonian troops. Nebuchadnezzar has taken their people into slavery. Their king has had his eyes put out. They are now living in exile away from the land. And God says to them, seek 
the good of the city to which I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray to the Lord on behalf of beautiful downtown Babylon. Many of God's people even today, when they think about the city where they live or people who are in authority where they live, they want to immediately begin to think about judgment. God's going to call down judgment on this city. God is going to judge these wicked and terrible rulers. But Paul says, pray for all those in authority. And let me remind you again that there were no Christian kings. There were no Christian emperors. There were no Christian presidents. There were no presidents. He could not have imagined anything like what I'm going to read to you now. I'm going to read to you just a few words from a prayer prayed by an American president. Franklin Roosevelt, he led the nation in prayer. We're so used to, this was a prayer that FDR led the nation in on D-Day, June 6th, 1944. Almighty God, our sons, the pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our faith, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity Lead them straight and true, give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. The enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we will return, and we know that by thy grace and the righteousness of our cause, they will triumph. They will be sore tried by night and by day without rest, The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violence of war. For these men are lately drawn from the ways of peace. They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among your people. They yearn but for the end of battle and for the return to the haven of home. But Father, some will not return home. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy servants, into thy kingdom. It goes on. Isn't that a stunning prayer prayed by a president at a critical time in this nation's history? In fact, in world history, June 6, 1944, perhaps the most important day of the last century. We're used to seeing somebody, for instance, this last week, and in every previous inauguration, taking an oath with their hand on a Bible. We count this as the common currency. But the ancient Christians saw nothing like that. They had to pray for those in authority, knowing that those people in authority might seek to put them to death. How did the early Christians pray for people in authority? Well, I found a couple of ancient prayers. The first is from about 90 AD, in the first century, from Clement, who lived in Rome. Listen to this prayer. He's talking about praying for rulers and all in authority. Grant them, O Lord, health, peace, harmony, and stability, so that they may give no offense in administering the government you have given them. Praying for the peace and the health and the security and the good administration of government. Tertullian. An ancient church father writing in about 200. I love this prayer. We pray for the emperors, for their ministers, and those in power, that their reign may continue, 
that the state may be at peace and that the end of the world may be postponed. That's a fascinating prayer. What is it about praying for those in authority in connection with all people? Well, immediately what you begin to note in terms of its priority, whether it's a friendly emperor or a hostile emperor, is that it is tied to this all people question. And that is the great purpose. Because the purpose is for the gospel to go out in the whole world in an unhindered way, and that is specifically tied to the issue of peace. Look at it again here in 1 Timothy 2. Paul writes, Pray for those in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The purpose of praying for the civil government and all those who are in authority, whether you're talking about a city council or a mayor, or a, so the gospel can be progressing in the whole world. Where there is war and disorder and mayhem and madness, there the church is thrown into disquiet. And there the gospel is hindered. And so we pray for government because we want the church to be at peace and we want the gospel to go forward in an unhindered way. Now, of course, some of you are going to immediately object and say, but pastor, surely the gospel has gone forward in the world in times of persecution. Hasn't the gospel spread during those times too? And it has. Tertullian, whose prayer I just quoted to you, is famous for saying that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Well, yes, there have been times when, despite great persecution, the gospel has moved forward across the face of the earth. But there are other times where persecution has snuffed it out. In the 17th century, missionaries went to Japan. Jesuit missionaries came to Japan to make progress with the, with the gospel. Shosaki Endo, in his wonderful but tragic and sad novel, Silence, highlights the sorrows and pain of the fledgling Christian community there in Japan and the terrible suffering that they endured in a place called Nagasaki where 16 Catholic priests were crucified. And while the church has grown in China and the church has grown wildly in Korea, in Japan, down to this day, it remains one of those places in the world that shows steadfast opposition to the gospel. In the 13th century, the Muslim world erupted in violence against Christian communities in the Middle East. And down to our day, terrible persecution is endured by Christian believers at the hands of many radical Islamic extremists. Not only in the Middle East, but in Africa too. The gospel goes forward, but it goes forward most especially where there is peace. So the prayers that we make for those in authority are not simply for their blessing, but for the peace of the Christian church and the progress of the gospel. People I know who are Christians just can't find it in themselves at times to pray for those who they disagree with. My friends, if you live long enough, you're going to have presidents and senators you disagree with. 
at least about a couple of things. I've been through all these administrations, and I've prayed for every single one of these folks, and that's our responsibility. That's what we're supposed to do. We pray for them. Why? Because we agree with everything they say. No. We pray for them because we endorse every one of their policies. No. I stood in Corinth a couple of years ago right in front of a colossal, beautiful sculpture of Nero seeing the curled hair come down his face and I could see in that face the echo, the sign of the man who sent Peter and Paul to their deaths and slaughtered Christians by the thousands. My friends, this is the man that Paul said, pray for. Pray for. Pray because when we pray, God answers and his people will come to peace and the gospel will make progress in the world. And the reason that's necessary is because Jesus not your political candidate or party is the only hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. The Romans had a saying, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. They had an inscription on one of their coins talking about Caesar Augustus. There is salvation in no other name. The early Christians came along and said, no, 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 not Caesar is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and there is salvation in no other name than him. It put them in direct conflict with the governing authorities. No wonder they were sometimes savagely persecuted. They persevered in the faith. You never compromise your message, but you also pray for those who are in these positions of authority. And you bring the message of Jesus to the world because as Paul writes here, of the world, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate looked at him just before he was sending him to be crucified, and he said, don't you know I have authority over you to do with you whatever I want? And Jesus didn't say to him, you don't have authority. He said to him, the authority you have is from my Father in heaven, or you would have no authority at all. My friends, authorities in this world, they come and go. Some are more memorable than others. We talk about Pontius Pilate in our creed. We have a wicked government ruler in our creed. Karl Barth said, Pontius Pilate got into the Apostles' Creed the way a dirty dog walks into the living room. What is he doing there? Well, he's there because Christ came into the world in a time of darkness with wicked rulers and the response of the Christian church was to pray for and die for those who were wicked because we know ourselves to be wicked. Jesus hung on the cross and he looked at the very people who had nailed him up and he said, Father, what? Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And so my friends, you may look at a senator or a president or a representative, or a judge, and you think, well, they're wicked, they're terrible. I, 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 I got a prayer for them. Oh, Lord, cast them down from their high place and let another their office take, amen. I had a person write me this week and say they were gonna pray imprecatory psalms over, over the government of the United States. Wow. That's exactly the kind of typical ancient Christian response you see in the Bible and in church history. Well, actually, no. What you see is people praying this way because they understand the purpose. 
that Jesus hung on the cross and he died for people who despised him, who were ungodly. And now here's the good news, my friends. How many of us were also ungodly and despised him? And aren't we glad that Christ, the mediator between God and man, came and died for us? He took our sins in his own body on the cross. He brought us back to the Father. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a a wretch his treasure. Behold the man upon the cross. My sin upon his shoulders. My sin, not their sins, mine. Because I need a savior. My sin upon his shoulder. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know it is finished, and I want the whole world to hear about Jesus and that it is finished because the only hope of the world is not found in a political leader or party, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the hope of the world. And that leads finally to this posture of praying. I want the men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without quarreling or dissension. In other words, unify around this. You're never going to unify around your political stuff. That's never going to happen. But you can unify here before the throne of grace and lift up holy hands. Now, some of you might be uncomfortable with a passage like that, lifting up holy hands. Some Christians are fine with lifting hands. They have satellite. Others have cable. Uh, Some people are just unplugged. So I get it. But the Bible actually talks about, you go, oh, see, oh, there's one right there for you. There we are. Uh, This is uh, from the um, third century, a third century catacomb. Here's an ancient Christian woman at prayer, hands lifted up and standing. Now, in the Psalms, you find people kneeling. Jesus fell on the ground in prayer. People bowed with their faces to the ground. Today, if you say, let's pray, what does everybody do automatically? They bow their head and fold their hands. That comes from the Middle Ages. That's actually a medieval thing that goes back to knights bowing to their lord or baron. And they're showing that they have no weapons in their hands, and they bow their heads to them. And that practice in the Middle Ages was carried over into the church. We're bowing before the Lord, so we're not going to, we just do this. And that's a very common practice. There's nothing wrong with it, but what I'm saying to you is that being spiritual involves being physical. Prayer is not something you only do silently in your heart, though that's appropriate too at moments. Hannah prayed that way. Sometimes we pray quietly in our hearts. And we, we, our mouths are moving, but you don't hear any words. But there are other times where this passage in 1 Timothy 2 is we're all together. I want the men to come together. I want them to stand up. I want them to lift up their hands because when you lift up your hands to the Lord, I will bless the Lord at all times, the psalmist said, and I will lift up my hands towards his temple. When you do that, you do that with one heart and one voice, and you cry out to God for his mercy for all those in authority, God brings his peace into the church his order into the world, and the gospel goes out. And my friends, when Paul began preaching in the first century, there were crosses all over the Roman world. When St. Augustine began preaching towards the 
end of the fourth century, there were still crosses all over the Roman world. But the difference between the first century and the fourth century was this. In the first century, there were people on those crosses. And in the fourth century, those crosses were on the tops of buildings announcing the good news of Jesus. And the whole empire had been converted. My friends, we have to take a long-term kingdom view. And that's why Paul wrote about someone who would eventually put him to death. First of all, pray for all people and for all in authority. Look, I know it's hard to do. It's hard to pray for people that you may fear, people you disagree with. But for 2,000 years, that's what we've been doing. And it's time for us to recover the first of all of that great privilege and responsibility again. And may God help us to do so. So that Jesus will be known in the whole world. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray this morning and ask that you would reorganize the priorities of our lives and our hearts and take us and deliver us from the idols of politics and power and settle us on the privileges of prayer. Help us to remember each day this week and each week as we gather to pray for those in authority. And in doing so, O oh Lord, to pray for all people in all nations everywhere. Help us to be reminded of this and to make it our priority. Through Christ our Lord, amen.